This is the Common Sense Podcast presented by Tamar. I'm your host, Tamar Weinberg, founder and CEO of Tamar, and I will be talking to people of all walks of life who have suffered adversity and overcome to rise above the ashes and now make self-care and wellness an absolute priority. Hey, everybody. I am so super, super psyched, ecstatic. I don't know what to say. Exceptionally ecstatic. And I use that word very, very purposefully here. I have my awesome friend, Erica O'Grady, who I've known for a really long time, but not really a really long time. Oh, maybe, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years. Is it more? Yeah, maybe so. Whatever it is. I add her. She's here. And I am so happy to have her, you, here. Thank you so much for joining. Where are you? And uh, talk, introduce yourself. Thanks, Tamara. I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm actually in Fort Collins, Colorado today. I got married not too long ago. And I was living in Boulder before that, so we moved to Fort Collins, and I love it. Awesome, awesome. So you say today, do you shift gears, or you just like you just moved recently? What's the? Well, for a while we were traveling quite a bit, and so we'd wake up in a different place every day. One day, I think we we woke up in Minneapolis and we had breakfast there. We stopped in Davenport, Iowa, for lunch and had dinner in Cheyenne. That's what happens when you get to have a client with a private jet. So. Yeah, yeah. How many people were on your private jet? Uh, it held 13. Oh, that's fun. So that's cool. Yeah. You were, you were very intimate. Yeah, it was. It was awesome, actually. Cool. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit, but I think that'd be fun. Um, but I guess we'll kind of go into what you do. And if you want to kind of make a foray into your conversation about the client with the private jet, by all means. Absolutely. So where should we start? Tell me about your career story. All right. Well, let's see. I got started in tech in 2006. And I think you and I probably met somewhere around 2007, 2008, definitely in 2008, because we did the Mashable Summer Tour together. We did seven cities that year. And then, so I've been working in tech. I got the first congressman on Twitter. He sent the first tweet from the Oval Office. I was working in social media. I'd been a web designer and developer for years and years. Friend Matt had started WordPress. My friend Christine had named it. So I've been using these tools since like before the dawn of time. And at some point... Not too long after you and I actually met, I think it was in 2010, my life kind of fell apart and it was, I'd been in a relationship for 11 and a half years and that relationship went south in a very scary way, like, you know, the FBI knocked at my door kind of way. And so my entire life and, and everything that I knew as it was went away almost overnight, like it's a kind of a long story and it involves like stolen money from bank accounts and all kinds of other crazy things we don't have to get into. But I sat on my couch one day, I woke up and I, I realized I didn't have enough money to buy dog food or toilet paper. And I was sitting on my couch crying, not sure what I was going to do after I'd built this company and had all these things going so well in my life. And I decided that I was going to start living as a digital nomad. So I spent two and a half years kind of traveling around different places. I lived in you know, Paris for a month in this little flat, like right near the Golden Triangle. And I, I, one of the ways that I kind of financed my trip is I stayed at bed and breakfast and I offered them social media and web design for 30 days in exchange for staying for free. So I'd stayed all these cute little bed and breakfasts all over. And when that was over, I was trying to figure out what I want to do next. And I moved to Boulder. And at this point I was 205 pounds I had spent most of my life working all the time. In fact, at the height of my career in the 2008, 2010 years around there, when I'd sleep on the couch in my office every night, like a, a, a white leather couch. And I, I had an office in the museum district in Houston, Texas. And I would actually sleep on my, my couch every night because I had so much work to do. 
And I just didn't want that life anymore. And so I asked myself the question, if you only had a year to live, what would you do? And I said, I'd move to Boulder. It was the first thing that came in my head because I'd been to Boulder and I loved it. So I packed up everything and I got a car rental and I drove one way to Boulder with my dogs <laughs> and I literally had nothing but a backpack. So I'd show up in Boulder with nothing but a backpack. That's all I kind of really had of, of my stuff. Everything else I'd given away a couple years previously to a family that had lost everything in a fire. So when my life fell apart, I just gave everything away. So when I got there, I just wanted things to be different. Um, I wasn't exactly sure even what I wanted to do for a living anymore, but I ended up spending the next seven, eight years in Boulder, left tech for a while, got my yoga teacher certification, went from 205 pounds to 127 pounds, kind of found balance in my life again. And then I started stepping my toes back into tech and realizing that I really missed it. And that's kind of where I ended up. I kind of came full circle from being in a tech space where everything was overwhelming and I hated it to being in a space that was maybe too much balance and not enough money. <laughs> you don't make a lot of money as a yoga instructor. Nope. To then circling back in a tech. And that's where I am today. Sweet. Yeah. You have a lot of parallels. You know, I actually had a relationship where it ended. No FBI, but the police kind of came and there was that. And that was my, you know, my adversity story it really ties into that kind of situation. But, you know, I, it's like I'm tech to perfume, but I'm still sort of doing tech. I'm launching a perfume brand and I'm in the middle of that. And Erica can see the mess behind me, a lot of my boxes. But like, it's, it's very slow because in, and Erica and I had a, had a meeting two weeks ago uh, where I'm like thinking of repositioning the brands because perfume <laughs> is just perfume. But perfume, it, when you're thinking about a disruptive mindset of perfume, you need to communicate that. And I didn't have that communication. So it's very slow because right now I don't think the communication is there. And so I have a lot of boxes and I need to start kind of thinking about the fulfillment. So I can never think of a 3PL right now. I'm, I am my own third party logistics provider and I will do fulfillment. But yeah, I mean, that's the nature of the beast. So of course, and, and maybe it's the difficulty of being tech and being all in, like, I'm not all in on, on this, but should I be? I don't know. There is, it's like, it's like if you, if I started a perfume company, it's like, I think about it, there's not enough, a lot of money in yoga. There's, is there a lot of money in perfume? I don't know, especially cause it's so competitive, but this is different and this is going to be a longer haul. And I, I get that. And I had a friend who started a magnetic, like baby onesie type products, a uh, baby jumpers. And she said it took years for her to start seeing traction. So I have the same expectation. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the average business is three to six years before you're going to see any real like forward progress or forward motion. You just have to be willing to kind of either be determined enough to work through it and get to the other side or say, I, this is not what I'm cut out to do. Right. But when it comes to tomorrow, I, I think what's interesting, and I, I think about this a lot, and when it comes to what you're doing, it's not just... And, and it's not even really a perfume at all. Right. It's it's about it's about this, this kind of idea of la of hacking our mental health or mental wellness. Right. You're actually trying to find a way to utilize one of the five senses. Right. To impact how people's mood changes. And so when you when you transitioned from tech into that, it doesn't seem that far off to me because it feels like you're going after ideally the life hacker crowd. Like that's what I would say 
if I, we, I think we did like a little session the other day as if you were our client and what it would look like if we did like looked at your website and looked at your messaging and told you what, what you should say or do. And it was fascinating. But I think that that's a, a whole new world that's going to open up. And it may just be that right now it feels a little like you're ahead of your time. Yeah, that's and a thing. that could actually be a good thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a conversation that I've had many times. I was an early adopter and I saw the potential for like, you know, Facebook and all these platforms well before their time. And if I knew better, I would have offered him 15,000, like Mark Zuckerberg, $15,000 instead of Eduardo Saverin, who's like, that's like billions of dollars of money right now. You know, like I, 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 I saw the potential and I even reached out to a, a VC company um, back in the day and I said, how can I potentially be one of those people who like in EIR who vets an entrepreneur in residence who vets these prospective companies? Because I see potential early and I've been an early adopter. I saw social media marketing as a prospect before social media marketing was a thing. I wrote the first book pretty much 2008. It was published in 2009 and people didn't see these things as being big. So yeah, I, I, there's definitely- Or relevant. I, I, or even really, I remember back that time I had Verizon. I had Verizon as, in, this is 2008, 2009 area. I had Verizon as a wireless provider and they wouldn't allow me to use the 40404 hash or, um, short code for, for Twitter. And I got so mad, I switched providers because I couldn't use Twitter. And I remember them being like, what's Twitter? They didn't care. It wasn't a thing. And I remember standing there and I was standing in line at a movie theater and we were looking up at the news station or something as you're like standing in line. There was like a TV up above where they saw all the concessions. And I said, someday the newscasters are going to be sitting there and there's going to be a Twitter stream running below them as they talk. And the people around me are like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's never going to happen. And sure enough, not even like a year or a year and a half later, that's exactly what was happening all over the world. And so it, it was this thing of like, sometimes being ahead of your time is very frustrating right? because you're stuck in this holding pattern where you know the rest of the world's about to see this. They're about to come to this, but you can't do anything to accelerate their adoption of something that you know is about to be mainstream and you're so excited and so into it. And by the time they do adopt it, you're kind of like, eh, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been doing that a while. I'm, I'm ready <laughs> to move on to the next big thing. So there is something about chasing in a way, what we do for a living, uh, the space we work in, we're always chasing after that next pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. And I think they, a lot of people in investment, like you were talking about wanting to vet companies, they call those the unicorns. Right. And we're seeing right now an increase actually in financing of unicorns, but not financing of startups in general, which leaves you at a disadvantage because people aren't really financing new, new ideas, but they are financing and giving more money to people who are already considered those unicorns, those startups that are going to be one in a billion and, you know, make it to an IPO. Right. But I think there's also the challenge that startups seek specific types of individuals. And I'm not necessarily, you and I are, are the average, like no. we're the early adopters, but we're not the people that they're going to come to. Angels. Yeah. I took a class, a course online, a free venture class a, a few months ago. I could send you the link to that. But what's really interesting is that it makes it look like they're the angel. Anyone who invests early gets squeezed out. Like it doesn't sound like it's be, to be beneficial to to either be an angel. It doesn't sound beneficial to be a founder. Maybe it's good to be a VC. So that's right. why I say e, to be an EIR might be good because yeah, angels get squeezed out, and especially when you when you raise additional series, you could potentially lose that investment that you put in the beginning. I think that's not necessarily when you're on a good trajectory, but when you're on a bad trajectory, it's like that's it. And if there ends up being a sale at maybe a lower valuation, those people are out. I mean, it's 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 really sounds bad. 
So <laughs> it has really kind of disenchanted me about the entire process is all. So. Well, it is, it is bad. It is bad unless you're one of the, the cool kids on the inside, right? Those are the guys. It's kind of like if you look at what's going on in the news right now, if you look at Robin Hood and the GameStop and all that stuff that's going on, here we have Robin Hood whose whole platform was designed to like be for the little guy. And what are they doing? They're backing Wall Street and the corporations and <clears throat> basically trying to like – you know, screw the little guy. And right. that's, that's a, that's a place that's like a, a, a I mean, it's, a, it's difficult for their brand and B it, it speaks a lot to, to what the truth is. The truth is that there is a little bit of a club and that club kind of protects itself. And I think one of the things I've seen and, and you, maybe you've experienced this too is very often um, I would have people from everyone from what used to be DFJ Mercury and as Mercury fund to whomever like uh, different VC companies and people that are running VC companies come to me and want me to like look at deals and I would look at the deal and I'd give them feedback and they would trust my, my opinion. They would absolutely trust me because I've, I've seen a lot of deals and I've been right a lot of times. And yet, even though they would trust me with that, I don't really benefit in any real way by doing that. I, I'm not being paid for my knowledge. I'm not, being, they wouldn't invest in anything I would, had brought to them. That, that was not going to happen because I'm not a 28-year-old male um, with the right pedigree. And so there is kind of a disadvantage. Um, where that is changing, uh, there are people like Sue uh, Hellbronner, who is uh, the CEO of a company called Merge Lane. They're like tech stars for women, for women-owned ventures. In fact, you might want to talk to her. They have a cohort every... Um, it's twice a year, I think now. So they bring in different companies uh, to their accelerator program. It's amazing. But every single company is uh, funded by a woman. And so that's one place to look. And so there are those types of opportunities arising in the last, I don't know, five, six years, more, more, more opportunities like that. But for the most part, what we're seeing is the same old, same old, even in, and this is fascinating to me. So I spent some time in the Canatech space, so cannabis technologies. So everything around not actual cannabis itself, so not the growing of or the smoking of or anything like that, but the the the, the stuff around it. It's like the paraphernalia. So one of the companies I was on the advisory board for is called Stashbox, and they basically gave you like a monthly box full of little things you could use for, you know, whether it was little like um, pipes for smoking or candles that smell like candles, whatever it is, like little things like that. And even in that space, which you have to understand, cannabis predominantly – the people who ended up going to jail for cannabis are, you know, African-American. Those are the people that know the product well. But who gets funded in the Canatech space? White, 28-year-old men with a similar pedigree, <laughs> right? <laughs> that if you, look at the, if you look at who's getting the funding across the board, that's what you're seeing. And, the, and then as a result, you're seeing states having to enact laws that a certain amount of funding has to go to minority-owned cannabis you know, innovations or, or solutions or technologies or whatever. Yeah. And so no matter what space you're in, it seems like it's always the same old, same old. And it's a very hard to break through that kind of mold. Um, I'd like to see that change more. And, and I, I don't know the exact right way to do that, but I do think it's possible. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a guy who's on a group that I'm in and he, he's obviously a white male. I don't know how old he is, probably in his thirties. But he said he's going to change his identity and work completely from a blank slate, from a blank bank account with the objective that he could make a million dollars a year based on his 
quote unquote hustle. But, you know, I didn't think about it. And then all of a sudden I shared this with a friend of mine who was about to do the same thing. He like moved cross country and he wanted to start a new thing. And he's like, yeah, well, this guy is a white heterosexual male. That's all he needs. Once you really have it, because he's already had it in his, his life. And he has, he has, he has, he's not going to leverage his connections, but he's going to show that he can do it. I mean, I think he's, he's only about, he's not anywhere near where he needs to be, but the point is that it becomes a lot easier because of that pedigree, 100% that pedigree. So, yeah. Anyway, first of all, I don't know if you want to, you did talk about a couple things you did in tech. I don't know, again, if you're going to talk about your special client, but I thought that was really cool. But, and I know you've kind of touched upon it, but I don't know if it's the same thing, you know, like your story that ultimately comes to the adversity that you faced. So I know that I'm throwing a lot at you all at the same time. I'm sure you'll weave it together. It's been a fun conversation so far and we're, I'm enjoying it, but yeah, I'd love to, love to hear a little more about these little stories, little nuggets of Erica. (laughs) Well, it's, it's funny. So so I'm living in Boulder. This is like, I'd been there probably five and a half, six years at that point. And I have what I would call, because I think we talked about this earlier, the, the thing about life is, and, and I think it was Van Wilder that said this, you, you can't take life too seriously or you'll never get out alive. And and I think that we have to reinvent ourselves multiple times. I don't think it's a, a one-time thing. Right. I think it's a multiple-time thing. So one of the things that I kind of discovered being in Boulder was that we're going to have these traumatic experiences over and over again. Once you get through the first one, there's often going to be another one right behind it. And sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier. So while I was in Boulder, I actually went through kind of a, what I would, what I would call a period of grief, deep, deep grief. I, I lost somebody I loved very much to a heroin overdose. Hey, this is life, right? That's, that's real life. So I'm, I'm living in Boulder. I've been there, you know, six and a half years and I, I realized that you're going to have to suffer these like tragedies over and over again in life. And, and that's just the nature of what life is. And so I had met someone and I, I really loved him very much. And he ends up killing himself in a heroin overdose. And I feel like it's my fault because I had kicked him out. And like, like, I feel like I just, I took on a lot of like blame and guilt. And I was like, I, I should have saved him, not understanding that it is never possible to save another person, especially from themselves. And so I go through this deep grief and I again go to this point where for almost a year I walk around in like a zombie world. Like the world isn't even there. I I can barely take care of myself. Like I am completely lost. I I am not even like, I'm not even really trying to go through the motions. I feel empty. Like nothing matters. There's ever going to matter again. And I can't get better. Like I am going through this grief and it actually starts before he dies. It starts before he dies. It starts when I kick him out because I know when I kick him out, he's probably going to end up dead. So of course I'm already bearing the guilt of this. And so I'm walking through this, this world and I don't even see the world around me. I am constantly, I don't care about anything. I'm just like, I have no emotions. I'm, I'm emotionless. I'm empty. I'm lost. And I'm not, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. And every day I feel worse and not better. I'm like, how is it possible? I thought I thought I would get better. I thought well, with time I'm going to get better. And I didn't. And so one night I went to this thing and they said this word I'd never heard before, complicated grief. Complicated grief is a form of grief where every, every passing day, instead of getting better, you actually feel worse. This is a real thing. You don't go through those normal five stages of grief that we see. You never really come to acceptance because you can never properly grieve. And there's components of, of 
complicated grief. One of them is called ambiguous grief. Ambiguous grief is basically the idea that you're kind of grieving something that hasn't happened yet. Oh, no, that's anticipatory grief and ambiguous. So anticipatory grief is like grieving something that, you know, you think might happen but hasn't happened yet. So I'm grieving his death and he's not dead yet. And then he dies and then I have to still grieve. So it isn't until he dies that I start actually going through a normal cycle of grief where I start to feel like I can see again or I can breathe again. And when I start to breathe again, my life's a disaster because I hadn't done anything to focus on my life for so long that every piece of my life, every area of my life is an absolute and complete disaster. So once again, I feel like I'm in this space where I'm picking myself up and having to figure out what's next. Um, and in the midst of that space, I somehow do this thing that I never thought was possible and that's that I fall in love. And I was so resistant to love because I was scared to ever love again because I thought for all I knew about love was that you lose something that you're going to get hurt later. But I fall in love and through the process of falling in love, I realized that grief is not something that you move on from. Um, and someone said this so well in a, a TED talk once she said that it's something you move forward with, that the grief comes with you. And so rather than denying that I was sad and missed this person who, who died, I took that into my next relationship as a part of who I was and accepted that it was a part of who I was. And I was really lucky because the man I ended up marrying had a very similar um, kind of deep heartache and hurt and grief. And so together we were able to heal one another. And then ultimately now um, we have a wonderful marriage, but we also run a business together. And so I never expected this to, to be the reality that I walked into. And it's awesome. And I'm, I'm lucky because I do have a very amazing partner on every level. Like I can't even tell you, like I'm, I'm, I, I definitely married up. So, um, <laughs> he looks like Brad Pitt. He's got the heart of like, you know, Billy Graham. He is, he's kind and, and, and everyone loves him and he's just, he's a wonderful human. And so we started a business and Originally, we were kind of, he was very much against ever working with a spouse again because he'd had that in a previous marriage and it had really hurt their relationship. And and I was on the side of the fence where for me, it would be because my work is so important to me, the work I do in the world means everything to me. It would be nice to work with my partner because then at least we'd see each other. And I think you can relate to that because I, I could be a workaholic. Like yes, me. an understatement of the year. Uh, it's funny because when we, so Erica and I were talking last night and I was looking at, I'm sitting here at my desk and I look at my watch and I've done 346 steps, seven o'clock at night, 346 steps. So what I do, I have, I have a goal. I always have to hit my step goal. My step goal is 6,500. Why is it 6,500? Because on a Garmin watch, 6,500 steps is the equivalent of 10,000 steps on a Fitbit. Yes, I used to own both. I get my 10,000 steps, I'm using quotes here, in. Last night at 11 o'clock at night, I went on the treadmill and I did my whatever I did, whatever I needed to do. So that is, that's, that's what, that's what happens. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, and it's amazing. I, I I've seen Erica, like I've known Erica for a very long time, just seeing her relationship with her husband. I mean, I'm so happy for you. Like you've like, you've definitely, I don't want to say you've married up because like, I don't know Dakota as much as I know you, 
but I, you know, I, I, I definitely like, I mean, I just see you're like glowing in a way that I've met, like I haven't seen in, like you have a spark in yourself that I've never, I haven't seen before. So that's and, the... and that spark is like, it's, it's actually fueled our business. Life is a, a journey and a road, right? We never know where we're going to end up. So I get married and we start a business together. Yeah, I thought that was, I think that's amazing. I, I mean, I would love to know like how you met him and your background on that, because I think that's um, cool. It's actually kind of a fascinating story. It's it's probably not what you're going to imagine. Um, <laughs> I like these stories that I can't imagine. So remember when I was feeling very empty and like nothing mattered or would ever matter again? I also, was, I kept trying to date because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I kicked the person who died out in like January. And by August, I realized that I should probably start dating and so I'd been on, I guess it was like maybe right before. So July, August, I'd started going on dates on Tinder and I didn't, I couldn't feel anymore. I was, I was very much still in love with this other person. And I was also in this weird kind of grief that I didn't understand where nothing in the world felt like it mattered. I had no emotion, so I couldn't bond or attach to people. And so I went on to this, you know, went out trying to date and in the process of this this dating space that I was in, I matched with this guy on Tinder. But lo and behold, I didn't know that the person that picked me out on Tinder was actually like his soon-to-be ex-wife. Oh, wow. So she picks me out on Tinder. I wasn't really his type at all. And so he picked me out, and we went on a date, and it was really nice. And we dated kind of casually for like three months, nothing really serious at all. And then he kind of disappears from my life. And at this point, I start dating like crazy. Like, um... Everybody. I'm like dating crazy, crazy all the time. I'm um, dating one of the co-founders of PayPal. I dated like, everybody, right? So I'm just dating up a storm, right? And that, so that's so through December, I'm dating. January, I'm dating. February, I'm dating. March, April. Um, in March, um, this person I love so much kills himself on March 7th. And it destroys me. Yeah. And at the same time, is is really hard to explain, but it becomes the space where I called it the space of mercy, because his death freed me from having to worry about him dying, because now the worst that could happen had happened. So now I was able to start to grieve. So I start to properly grieve and go through the cycles of that, even though I've really been grieving for like a year prior to his death. Now I'm actually grieving. I grieved the most of April and in, I'm starting to actually feel better by the end of April, not better, better, like not hundred percent. It's going to take like another year for that, but, but better enough that I can, I can feel again and I can feel not just my emotions, but like little things. Like I'm happy that the sun is shining and I'm happy that, you know, I can see people I love to be around and see my friends and things like that. And in May I reconnect with Dakota. And by this point, his divorce has been finalized and he and I start to date and we date for like a year after which we end up getting married. And so that was kind of how I met him. It was this really weird story that like he didn't even pick me out on Tinder. That's really, yeah. <laughs> like his ex-wife picked me out and as it turns out, like it, it was a good choice. Was, so, I, it's, so um, ni- it's so nice that his ex-wife is that for you. I mean, really, that's beautiful. Yeah. It that was, itself is very beautiful. It was really nice. I mean, that also yeah, speaks to his person. Like, that speaks to the kind of person he is. Like, I know him as little as I know him, but, like, that speaks to the fact that she still is looking out for his future. That's beautiful. 
Oh yeah, they love they love each other still. It just didn't work. It wasn't the right relationship, right? There's a lot of like caring there. Um, so going going forward from that, I, you know, I really wanted to build something with someone. He was very resistant to that because of past experiences and how how that did not work out well. And in the midst of me trying to convince him we should build something, and I've been working on this company called Exceptional since April of the following year, or the, or the previous year, sorry. Um, I get a phone call from uh, one of our friends, Oz Sultan, and Oz says, hey, do you know anybody that um, would come hop in and run social for this presidential campaign? And I'm like, well, I'll do it. And he's like, wait, you're available? And I was like, I was like, am I available? I like, yeah, I'm available. And, um, and he goes, well, if I'd known that, I would have asked you to begin with. So basically, I'm being called in the third of many people to replace someone who isn't working out. This is the 11th hour of this presidential campaign, so we we go in on this. I have no idea who this guy is. I've never heard of him. Don't know the first thing about him. I kind of Google him, and I'm like still not kind of sure I should get on the plane. But I get on the plane, and I show up in Salt Lake City, and I start running social media for Brock Pierce and his campaign. And we are about um, – the first day we're in Salt Lake City. <laughs> the next morning we go to Boise, Idaho on the campaign bus. And we get there, and we're there for a couple days. And I'm just kind of getting my feet under me. And at first, I'm not really, I'm clashing quite a bit with Brock because I'm very set in that I don't think you chase algorithms. I think you run a strategy and I think strategy is more important than algorithms because algorithms change. And, and I've got all these ideas about how it should be and we're kind of butting heads. But at some point, we have this cathartic moment and it happens in a, in a room full of legislators. These are, these legislators in Idaho, they're, they're um, you know, state senators and, and, and people like that that are in this room. And we start to talk. And I watch something in front of these uh, legislators that I'd never heard a politician say before. And I realize that I'm exactly where God wanted me to be, which is this weird thing to say, but that's what it was. And so at some point we're all going around the room talking about why we do the things we do, the work we do in the world. And it comes to me and I burst out into tears and, and Brock's sitting at one end of the table. And I say, I, when I first came here, I almost left the day after I got here because I didn't think this is where I was supposed to be. I didn't know if I was in alignment with the calling that was meant for my life. And I'm sitting in this room today and I can't believe what I've just heard. And, and, um, Brock kind of jokingly says, you didn't realize that this was a divine calling. And I was like, I didn't, but I do now. Right. Yeah. And that was kind of the start of me understanding a, who he was as a, as a person and as is why he was running and all these things and, and the kind of man he was and B why I was there to begin with. So I am after that, for some reason, like the work that I'm doing is getting actual results. So the, the work I'm doing on the campaign, they're seeing an uptick, things are happening and they're like, wow, we're finally getting social right. And we are sitting in the campaign bus and one of the guys says, oh, we're going to hop on the private jet tomorrow and we're going to fly to Alaska. And I think they're hazing me. I'm like, of course they're hazing me. No, there's no way in the world that we're going to drop, 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 you know, jump on a private jet and fly to Alaska. Why in the world would we fly to Alaska? That's crazy, right? And sure enough, the next morning, we jump on a, a private jet and we fly to Alaska. And at this point, Dakota's like, uh, we, he didn't realize I was going to be going to Alaska. That wasn't in our itinerary anywhere. So I get to Alaska and I had signed on originally for 12 days on the campaign to be with them in person. In the last 10 days, I'd be doing remote. Or was it 13 days? I don't know what it was. Um, and so we get there and Andy, one of the guys on campaign, comes to me and he says, what would it take to get you to stay on the campaign with us the whole time? I was like, well, you're going to have to bring my husband here because A, it was way too much work and I couldn't do it all by myself. I was basically doing the job of five people. I was getting almost no sleep to try to keep up with all the social. And so you're going to have to bring my husband here, you know, because, you know, we were just, well, that was not the plan. I had made a deal with my husband that I'd be back in 12 days. 
And so lo and behold, the next morning they fly my husband to Anchorage and he joins us on the campaign. And the next thing you know, we are this kind of like power couple. And it goes from us having almost no authority in the kind of team to having everybody coming toward us and asking us and running ideas by us. And we, we bond with them. They become like family, like true family. But I think we prove at some point that we're actually competent and we can actually do the job we've been hired to do. And they're seeing that they're getting results and, and they're basically getting Dakota for free at this point. Right. Not anymore. Cause they still pay us a lot of money, but they, you know, it's, it's not free anymore to have Dakota on board. But you know, at that point, I was just like, just bring my husband and pay for all of our stuff. And so we, you know, we go on this like, trip and we're flying all these places and doing all these things. And you have to understand Dakota hates flying. He's like got severe, you know, I get it. anxiety. And, and it's very like difficult, even a private jet to fly with him. So, um, <laughs> so that was our, actually in our marriage, our first time flying anywhere together. And so... Here we are, Very you know, cool. flying from like Anchorage to Fairbanks and Fairbanks to Minneapolis and Minneapolis. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And it, for us, because we hadn't had a chance, we'd started uh, when we got engaged, we'd started planning this Viking wedding and we didn't get to have it. I have like 12 bridesmaids because COVID had hit. Yeah. And so we had postponed it until all my bridesmaids would agree to come, which some of them haven't left their house, honestly, since like March or April. So these are people that aren't aren't really traveling and doing things until until all 12 of my bridesmaids will be there. I'd kind of said I'm not going to have my wedding. So we hadn't had a wedding or honeymoon. And for me, this kind of felt even though we were working super hard, long hours, sometimes 20 hours a day, it felt like a honeymoon. It was this bonding experience I never expected. That's nice. You're doing what you love, which is the best part. We love it. It's so much fun. And and so we got we had great results. We actually grew their social by 373% in the short time we were there compared to where everybody else had put it. Um, we got them real results. We did a lot of really innovative, cool things that, that people hadn't done before. Um, and and then when it came down to it, it, they kind of asked us if we would be interested in sticking around if he decided he was going to run in 2024, which we think he might be running for president in 2024. And we said we'd love that. And in the meantime, we've been doing a lot of work for various companies of him and of his and, and growing our agency, honestly. And uh, we recently launched a new website and not even 24 hours after I put it up without a single word of promotion, I hadn't even posted it anywhere. We got a new client. We were like, this is crazy. This is actually converting. And so we, we found that what one of our specialties is looking at people's, you know, their websites, their messaging and showing them small changes they can make to get higher conversions, to get people to actually do whatever they want them to do. Sign up for a mailing list, buy a product, sign up for a group or course. We can do that and we know how to do it. Um, a lot of it comes down to something called CRO, which is conversion rate optimization. So that's one of our specialties. Cool, cool. That's really awesome. And by the way, you're, you're totally kicking ass. It's, I really, like, I mean, I can see. And so, again, it's like. Yeah, there's a there's a guy in New York, um, Frank, I can't think of his last name right now. He's written some books, but he's the head of the um, Independence Party in New York City. Or New, I guess the state of New York. And he comes in one day and he, we're, we're in an office in New York and he walks by Dakota and I, he's like, oh, are you Dakota and Erica? And we're like, yeah, he's like, I've heard about you. You guys are the power couple. And we, it was the first time we'd ever heard anyone refer to us as, Frank McKay is his name, anyone refer to us as a power couple. And we're like, whoa, we're a power couple? We had no idea. This is so cool. So yeah, so that was kind of the, 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 when that happened, we realized we, we not only work really well together because we have complementary skill sets, but that we we present in a way that isn't just, you know, that clients 
like like the way we present, but we present in a way that shows that we're incredibly effective at what we do. So they they actually see that we when when we talk together, when we're we're next to each other, and we're giving clients advice, we play off each other really well, and we give them you know concrete advice that's actually effective, um, as opposed to just kind of like platitudes or I, I see a lot of people in marketing that are like giving like the same advice over and over again. And it's not very specific and actually isn't going to get them any results. And so what we do is very specialized. Awesome. Awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm definitely sending work your way when all those opportunities arise because you guys have some good, yeah, good stuff, good stuff going on. And it's so much fun to like, just, you know, talk, talk concept with you and all these things. That's, it's been really fun, you know, just, you know, chilling with you lately because we've been doing a lot more of that. <laughs> it's funny because Erica and I, Erica and I, we know each other like, you know, on and off for like a little over a decade. But like, you know, we talk, we've been talking. But then all of a sudden, like I post all these questions on these online Facebook groups and, and Erica's like, guess what? I do this. I'm like, guess what? I do? And I'm like, because, you know, it's like it's like our little rekindling because of thank, thankfully Facebook lets you know when your friends post in groups because that's really where it came from. Like I, I started asking questions in the Elementor community to WordPress WYSIWYG plugin and and Erica, Erica, you know, comes and saves the day. So thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I actually I actually think WordPress has come a long way as I and I. I see a lot of, um, I don't know if you know this, but WordPress had re- recently launched or they're, they're testing out kind of beta um, their own design service. So they're going to be charging, I think it's like $4,900 basically for a website if you go through them and they're going to ha- have their own designers. They may even partner with people. But the funniest, the, the, the most interesting thing was a lot of the design community, there was some pushback and they were kind of yelling at Matt and saying, wow, like you're trying to like encroach on our business basically. That's not fair. WordPress has such a bigger platform. And Matt was like, listen, if a single one of you ever loses a client because of us and our design service, come to me and tell me, right? Like show me that I, that I, I that it was because of us, you know, cause I think there's, cause I think he's right. There's more work out there than there are people to do it right now. Of course. There's a lot, a lot of people that need good dev design, marketing teams, whatever it is. And there aren't a lot of people out there that are really that great. So they're probably filling a gap that's necessary. Yeah. All right. Let's shift gears. I know. So you talk about like how you really have focused like on bettering yourself. You lost like, you know, 80%. Well, it's not 80%, 80 pounds ish. Uh, it's not, it's, uh, 78. So you're, you're, it's funny. Like I've, I've pretty much done the same thing. I, I, you know, my fitness pal, I think reports now it's like 72. It used to be 90, 90 something, (laughs) but unfortunately for me, I gained 30 pounds back during COVID. I've lost 15 since January 1st, so there's that. Yay, it's it's, it's only a little over a month. I'm not going to say the date <laughs> because this gets published a little later. But that's, yeah, so I, I, I want to hear, you know, self-care has been a big focus for you, I think. And how are you doing that? What are you doing? Uh, are you yoga-ing? Are you doing all that other stuff? Are you focusing on fitness? Like, what's your, what's your regimen? It doesn't even have to be that. Self-care could be completely like reading a book because that's all good, too. So it's, it's fascinating because I, when I, when I did all that, I became, you know, I became a certified yoga instructor when I was in, um, Boulder and I got down 127 pounds. And then, um, when COVID hit, I know that we, Dakota and I both gained probably about 10 pounds when we went on the campaign, we gained like another 30. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and so we've been taking that off again. So we built a, uh, out in our garage, we have like a little fitness area and we just hung up recently my aerial 
fabrics for aerial yoga. So I've been doing a lot of aerial yoga, which I like. Um, I also like to just lay in it and like read books because it's like, like kind of like laying in like an awesome, amazing hammock, only better. And so I love that. Um, and I also like, we used to take a lot of more hikes. Uh, we were, why are we going on a hike this weekend? Maybe with Blake Burris. I don't know if you know him, but he's from like kind of the Dallas uh, startup scene and he recently has moved to Boulder. And so I think we're going to connect there um, do like a boulder hike, but we do a lot of hiking. Uh, we love to go camping. My husband, um, runs a group called spirit warriors where he takes men out into the wilderness and they build teepees and he teaches them how to start fires with pharaoh rods. And he teaches them how to balance vulnerability and masculinity. That's awesome. So it's an entire program that they do. And so he and I love to go camping. So we spend a lot of time. We actually will go up, like, up these old logging roads, about 10,000 feet up into the top of a mountain. And we'll build our own teepees. We don't even take, like, camping gear. We, like, sleep on the ground. Like, but we build a teepee. And we have, like, tarp. And we, so we cut down, like, dead wood, deadfall kind of stuff. And we put it together. And we tie it at the top. And we, like, you know, hoist it up. And we, and then we put the tarp around it. And I do an amazing job at thatching. I am the best at roof thatching when it comes to camping. You won't even believe it. So we watched this show called Alone. And there's this woman on it. Her name is Nicole. And Nicole was showing how she thatched the roof of her, like, house. Because these people live all alone in, like, the middle of nowhere. And, and they, the person that lasts the longest all by themselves. And they don't get anything but, like, ten items. So they have to hunt for their own food. It's like, crazy. And she was showing how to thatch the roof. And so I did this thatching job and it rained the whole time we were up camping last time and not a drop of water got through my thatching job. I was so proud. And I was like, my husband's like, how do you learn to do that? And I was like, from watching Nicole and alone. He's like, I didn't even know you were paying attention. So I was super excited. That's funny. Uh, these days, if I am to watch television, I am, I, I, I look at my phone and I listen and it's bad. So I'll never learn how to, whatever, thatching whatever it is. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> so that thing. It's where you take like, um, like dry brush, brush, like, you know, stuff off the ground or, or leaves and stuff. And you put it at the top of the teepee to keep stuff from coming in. Oh, that's cool. So it takes a little bit of like, you take the, the branches and you push them all in different angles and stuff to keep all the water out. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. The stuff that I never thought I would ever need to know, but now there we go. <laughs> yeah. You probably won't need to know it at this point. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, was is, was Dakota an Eagle Scout, or he just like you know fell into this thing? Well, uh, I think he might have been an. I don't remember, but I feel like he was an Eagle Scout. Uh, but he's always been an outdoors guy. He grew up on a farm in Kansas, oh, wow. and started working when he was around. Well, driving around seven years old or so, and working around twelve. Like he was just. He's a guy that's always had a lot of stuff he's had to do. That's awesome. And so, yeah. Very cool. Cool, cool. Awesome. This is this has been fun. I really enjoy this. Tell me, I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna leave you with with a question that you have probably not been prepared for, but at the same time, you should have an answer. It's my common sense question, and the question is, if you can give one piece of advice to an earlier version of Erica, what would you tell her? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I think I would say. It all works out in the end. If it hasn't worked out yet, it's not the end. Because I think that that's the truth. I think that, I think eventually, like, life actually happens the way it's supposed to happen. 
And if we can trust it, like say they kind of say, trust the soup when you're creative to trust the soup, if we can trust life and, and trust that all we have to do is take the next right step in any direction that, that we want to go, that that's all that we have to do. Take care of today. Tomorrow takes care of itself. And it really does. Yeah. Because the, the truth is that tragedy is going to befall you and you could lose everything overnight anyway. Trust me. I've been through it. It sucks. Um, and and that, that's the moment when you learn who your real friends are and all these things. So, so there's actually a benefit to those kinds of things. When you lose everything, it's actually a, a good thing sometimes. When you look back on your life and say the worst thing that ever happened to me was was actually the best thing that ever happened to me because it taught me X, Y, Z, whatever. And so you just have to trust. It's it's all it's all happening and unfolding as it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like it, it ties into what you said earlier about like that whole thing with with the, the thing with Brock. Like God, you how you felt like you know God put you there. Um, that that tie in, and 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 it's like we we all endure our hardships. I think to give us the resilience and the strength to be able to conquer in the future. So all of those things happen. So emotionally, we're we're making we're better for the struggle. Yeah, a hundred percent. Always better for the struggle. So, so when the struggle comes, like be like, all right, I'm in the struggle phase. This is a season of struggle. It's okay. Like yeah. the next phase is going to be different. It, it doesn't last. None of these phases last forever. They're just right. one part of a journey and that journey becomes your life. And you think, but you know, the thing is that I think a lot of people feel like when this happens, the end is the end. It's like when you were like going through zombie phase, I had the same, I had a zombie phase where I did say going through the motions because I woke up and I had to get my kids to go to school. So th those are emotions, but I wasn't thinking like the cog, that was where my cognition was in the zombie phase also. I get it that you never think that'll end. And yes, just like you said, time, you know, you feel like time would heal, but sometimes it's really doesn't, it doesn't, especially in the beginning, especially when you're in that moment. So I totally get it. And then you think it's, it's never, it's never going to happen, but then it does. And then you're like, holy crap crap like things are so much better like better than it was before so they just i guess you got to believe so i like it cool what yeah. where where do people find you where can i tell people to find you sure so our company is exceptional agency and you can find us at exceptional.agency and i personally am at erica o'grady on almost every platform so um i just got a message here i'm watching uh our friend Brian Solis is interviewing, you know, Brock Pierce right now. And what's fascinating is that I didn't know that they could do this, but they're actually in a clubhouse room in addition to being live on Facebook. So I'm trying to figure out how they're even doing that. Probably a different device. Yeah, when we get off this call, I'm going to figure out how that's happening. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. Okay, I'll let you get to it. I didn't realize that you're interrupting your, like, you know, your client is busy with Brock. That's, well, there you go. That's cool. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so yeah, much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Yep, it's life. Me too. Thanks tomorrow. You have a great day. Thank bye. you. You too. All right. Bye. Thank you all again for tuning in. This is your host, Tamar Weinberg of the Common Sense Podcast. Till next time, 